All right. Hey, everybody. How are we? Good. Good to see you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. Uh, two quick things before we get started. One, uh, Mark shared about us sending a team to Russia. And one of the things I wanted to say was just thank you to you guys for your financial generosity. Um, we've said this a few times, but your generosity allows us to be generous. And so one of the things that we've been able to do, because you've been so generous with us, is to give money to the peop- those six people who are uh, going on this trip. We didn't want uh, finances to be an obstacle to helping and encourage missionaries we have in Russia. And so thank you for that. I um, just wanted to help you connect like how your generosity helps us be generous. Uh, secondly, um, in honor of my uh, Irish heritage, happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I, uh, I grew up in a home where St. Patrick's Day was taken very, very seriously. We did not celebrate it through the drinking of bad green beer. Uh, we, dr- we celebrated different ways. I felt like an honor. This is, I, my family was all around downtown, and I feel maybe just push back the cultural vibe of uh, what St. Patrick's Day has become. I am going to read you a quote from St. Patrick himself. I know a really crazy thing to have happen on St. Patrick's Day. Um, so this is from St. Patrick's Confession. I encourage you to read it. Uh, it would probably take you 20, 25 minutes. Google St. Patrick's Confession. But he said this. Um, this is about 1,600 years ago when he wrote this. I am, first of all, a simple country person, a refugee, unlearned. I do not know how to provide for the future, but this I know for certain, that before I was brought low, I was like a stone lying deep in the mud. Then he who is powerful came and in his mercy pulled me out and lifted me up and placed me on the very top of the wall. That is why I must shout aloud and return to the Lord for such great good deeds of, of his, here and now and forever, which the human mind cannot measure. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Um, yeah. All right. So um, we're going to go ahead and uh, jump in. Uh, so it feels like on the surface, the passage we just read is a break from the spectacular aspects of the book of Acts. Um, Acts is filled with all these miraculous moments. You know, it, it kicks off with another post-resurrection appearance of the risen Jesus telling his disciples what to go and do. Uh, it then leads to the spirit falling and tongues of fire falling so that they speak the gospel in such a way that these people from a diversity of nations and languages can hear the gospel in their own language. Last week, we see Peter transformed from coward into courageous, proclaiming the gospel, and it culminates and climaxes with thousands upon thousands of people repenting and believing. Next week, we will see the first healing in the book of Acts, and I can't wait to work through that uh, with you guys as well. And now you, it feels like a lull, right? Like, they formed a community. You know, what do you do? You know, it's like, it feels like such a bummer, uh, an in-between week. But here's, here's, the, here's the thesis I'm going to give you uh, as it pertains to what we're talking about this morning. Maybe the most miraculous work of the Spirit in all of Acts is the creation of a healthy community. Uh, maybe the most miraculous work of the Spirit in all of Acts is the creation of a healthy uh, community. Now, that's an exaggeration. I'm kind of trying to do a little bit of pastoral overspeak, but it is a miraculous thing that a healthy community called the church is formed this early in the book of Acts. Think, for example, let's bring it to the 21st century. Think, for example, how hard it is to experience healthy, functional community. I think we as Americans, we tend to believe we're enlightened, evolved. We are able to overcome any of the problems of humanity through our technological innovations. And I think the problem of being disconnected, the problem of isolation, the problem of lack of community is, even if you like study the last 15 years or so, is the one thing that it feels like our technological advancements have overcome. I mean, all of you in this room can probably remember when social media wasn't a thing, and then it became a thing. And it sort of promises being, here's this thing that helps you overcome your problems and feelings of being alone. Even, I'll just give you one example of this. Does anybody know what uh, Facebook portal is? Anybody ever heard of Facebook portal? They're, they need to step up their advertising game. Okay, so 
Facebook portal is basically like a, um, kind of like an iPad. It's like a screen, I guess you put in your house, that you can essentially FaceTime with people. And all their commercials have the same sort of feel of here's this really significant moment in somebody's life that they can't actually be physically present for, but because they have Facebook portal, um, it, it feels like they're there. In fact, the tagline for Facebook portal, it's a good one. They actually say, even if you can't be there, feel there. Even if you can't be there, feel there. Now let's think critically about that statement and that promise, okay? Like, let's not even think critically about, like, do you want um, Facebook to have a device in your home that sees what you're doing and hears what you say? I mean, um, you know, I'm sure they wouldn't do anything sketchy with that at all. And, you know, Facebook, I know you're listening to this right now. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Don't kill me. Don't become, like, self-aware and murder me. Um, All right. But let's think critically about this promise of like, even if we aren't with people, we can feel like we're with them. This problem of isolation can be overcome through, we're just one app away from overcoming this particular problem. The, the challenge of that uh, belief is that all of the data, like forget even our belief system, um, just for a second, we'll come back to it. But even the cold, hard, secular data is saying, like in the spite of us being the most kind of technologically advanced and seemingly socially media-wise, well-connected kind of culture ever, we are lonelier than ever before. In fact, let me give you kind of three interesting observations I think that we see as we study the data. The first is this. One, nothing impacts the quality of our lives quite like the quality of our relationships. In 1938... Uh, Harvard launched what is the longest-running study to answer the question on, um, and it's still going to today, uh, to answer the question of what makes somebody happy, what constitutes a healthy and happy life. And what they came to conclude after tracking 724 men, their spouses, and 2,000 combined children with regular interviews, their, their almost 100 years of analysis has concluded this. The single greatest determiner of both long-term happiness, quality of life, and physical health is the quality of relationships in our life. Two, we as Americans are lonelier than ever. A uh, major health organization in conjunction with UCLA, I think it was a study, it was last year, or it might have been 2017. They did a study about loneliness and culture, and what you would think is that uh, as you get older, you get lonelier. And what they found is the trend in American culture is actually the opposite. The older generations actually feel less lonely than the younger generations. That's very bizarre because you would think young people, oh, they like, can access social media platforms better than anybody else. Um, you're in the prime of your life. These are the best years of your life. But the conclusion they came to, they described as being alarming and concerning. It seems, this is their words, the younger you are, the lonelier you feel. So, for example, the greatest generation, that's my grandparents, feel less lonely on the whole than baby boomers, that's my parents. Uh, did I say that right? Uh, greatest generation, grandparents, baby boomers, my parents. Gen Xers um, uh, feel more lonely than their parents. Uh, millennials feel more lonely than them. And then Gen Zers, which that's here, if you're here and you were born around the mid-90s, uh, early 2000s or so, um, basically what UCLA is saying is you're the loneliest generation in the, the, the history of our country. Three, loneliness has real consequences on us culturally and personally. And uh, again, I know this feels a bit like a TED talk on loneliness that's meant to depress you, um, but uh, I promise I'm just trying to build the need to help you understand like we're not just an app away from fixing this problem. What we're seeing is um, like usually in social media to fix the problem of loneliness and isolation, it's like feeling thirsty and drinking salt water, okay? It's like there's hints of the solution in there, but it's actually making the problem worse, not better. Okay, so 
So it's having real consequences on us. And you could see this, you could talk about the political, increased political divide in the country where we can't even remotely have a conversation with somebody who has a remotely different uh, worldview than us. Listen to a fascinating podcast with Adam Silver, who's the, uh, the commissioner of the NBA, talking about the way that um, all this stuff is impacting negatively uh, NBA culture. You look at brain development of kids who are having less and less face-to-face interactions. Even if you look at personal health, I was reading one doctor who said this, um, research has found that loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, making it even more dangerous than obesity. Indeed, loneliness and social, social isolation has been linked to a higher risk of coronary heart disease and stroke. A 2015 study even links loneliness and social isolation with early mortality. All right, everybody feeling encouraged? Glad you came here instead of brunch. Um, <laughs> All right, so what's the point of all this? It's not to depress you, all right? And it's not like, this isn't like an anti-social media crusade. It's not to depress you. Here's what depression says for those of you who struggle with it. It lies to you and says to you, you have this problem, it's only gonna get worse, and it's gonna be this way for the rest of your life. That's never the truth of God in your life, okay? Like, if you believe that you have this problem, it's only gonna get worse, it's gonna be this way for the rest of your life, that's not your Lord speaking, that's your depression, The goal is not depression. Because some of you who feel lonely and isolated, you could have just heard that and be like, I'm alone and I'm always gonna be alone and now I'm gonna die early because I'm alone, okay? That's depression. The goal is not depression, the goal is dependency. The goal is coming to a place of saying, you know what, we're not just one app away from fixing this problem. You know what that is? That's Babel. That's the Tower of Babel. That's a bunch of people being like, we don't need God, we're gonna overcome the problem ourselves. We're gonna build this tower. We're gonna build this platform and all of the problems of the human heart are gonna disappear. So we wanna be dependent. We wanna have this posture of saying, and in some ways I hope this is affirming for you because a lot of you probably feel alone, isolated, misunderstood, don't have close friends. You're existing in the city or you feel close to people in terms of proximity, but you don't feel close to people relationally. And you, again, are prone to believe this lie of you're uniquely dysfunctional, you're uniquely bad. Everybody else has the best friends um, in the world and you feel all alone. You know what the reality is? Is most of you are surrounded by people who also feel alone and wonder why you have your act together so well. Because we all lie to each other on social media, right? Like, couldn't be happier, so happy, and it just compounds the problem over and over. I'm the only one who's like this. You're not the only one who's like this. Like the cold hard data is like, we're all like this. We're really struggling with this as well. So the posture is not one of depression, but dependency to say, I've got this problem. I want to go to the Lord with it. And thanks be to God that he does miraculous things, not just miraculous stuff like raising people from the dead and healing people, as we'll see next week, but even miraculous things like creating functional, healthy communities. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? All right, so let's go ahead and see how he uh, does this. Now, before we, before we uh, jump into the text, I know this is like the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever done, so just stick with me, okay? I want to deconstruct two assumptions I think we see predominantly in American culture that kill Christian community. And it's just helpful to kind of ask yourself, am I carrying these into this room? Is this one of the reasons that I'm struggling so much to get meaningfully and deeply committed to community? So two uh, assumptions I want to deconstruct. First, Christianity was never meant to be viewed first through the lens of me and God. Christianity was never meant to be viewed first or primarily or exclusively through the lens of me and God. Now, uh, we as Americans, it's just important for you to understand that if you grew up here, you were raised in a culture that sees the world uh, more individualistically than probably any other culture. Like, has anybody ever uh, traveled to another culture before? 
And if all, has anybody here not been struck by like how that culture is more hospitable and communal than our culture? Like, have you ever traveled to a culture that's worse at that stuff than us? I've never experienced that. Like what happens every time you travel to a different culture is what? What happens? You go and you're like, they're so hospitable. They're so welcoming. I'm going to change. I'm going to change everything. I have people in my house all the time. And then you get back and you're like, I just want to be alone and watch Netflix, right? You're like, like it lasts for a little bit. But like you just have to pause for a second. Like we are the most individualistic culture in the world. And if you don't think that impacts the way you interpret your faith without critical thinking, like you're going to just be caught in the tide of this culture and slip to a place of an individualistic perspective and interpretation of your faith. Like I challenge you to find in the scriptures a call where the way you should primarily understand your relationship with God is primarily and exclusively of like me and him. It's us. It's always we. It's always communal language. I mean, Jesus kicks off his mission and movement as I repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what's the first thing he does? Is he like forms a community of followers of him to love, delight, follow, understand, advance his kingdom to the very ends of the earth. And unless you think, oh, this is a weird thing that Jesus did, like the spirit falls and what's the very first thing the spirit does? Thousands of people are saved and they go home and they go like have their online worship experiences, Right? They go like, they're like, I prefer this pastor. I enjoy his podcast. I enjoy this style of music. That's what they go and do, right? You know, like, boom, immediately they are, you know, it's not even, like, you could push back and be like, well, I'm cynical and they know the technology. They had the technology. They would have done that back then. Okay. Well, like, why didn't they just, like, take the Bible and they just go, I'll go and do my quiet time alone on my own because all that matters is me and God. I'm saved now and one day I'm going to die and go to the good place as well as the bad place. Like, why is it in this life immediately? after they repent and believe, they're baptized and issued into this community that meaningfully, in a committed, covenantal way, does life together. Why does that happen? Because the call to follow Jesus has always been communal in nature. We can't fully follow Jesus in our isolation as much as our culture tells us we can. Again, I'm not trying to like totally crap on private devotion, but the end of private devotion, look at this, there's sort of a, or maybe I lost this, is it gone? It's gone? Okay. Um, Try to think critically then. I know, like, (laughs) it's like in Acts chapter two, well, now that's going to distract me. Uh, Just don't, yeah, we're good. Um, Somehow the gospel advanced in Acts chapter two without... Peter being able to be like, and I've got a, uh, I've got a slide here uh, in order to, <laughs> all right, so listen to this, um, all right, so our private devotion is meant to lead us to a place of communal worship, and our communal worship is meant to fuel our private uh, devotion, all right, uh, so yes, yeah, so that's uh, deconstructing assumption number one. Christianity is never meant to be viewed first through the lens of me and God. Now two, the church exists to reflect God's character before it exists to meet our needs. The church exists to meet God's character before it exists to meet our needs. I think this will be the most important thing I say this morning, is that it's easy, again, we absorb our culture and we sort of impose it upon our faith. And what's easy to do is to come into a church and to have a posture of, all right, how is this place going to meet my needs? Because if you study American culture, unlike almost anywhere else, American culture is architecting in such a way to say, what matters is you, what matters is your unique, particular preference being met. So I was thinking about this yesterday. My wife sent me to the grocery store. I'm walking through the chips aisle, and there are like a lot of chips. Like, have you noticed? Like, there are like, 
a lot of chips. It's not just low fat and full fat. It's like, do you want low fat of this particular salt amount of this particular, do you want wavy or do you want ruffles or what, do you, what exactly is it that you want in it? And um, has anybody ever tried to buy chips in another country? What is it like when you buy chips in another country? It's like, do you want chips or do you not want chips? That's what it is, right? But American culture is like, what particular nuance of chips do you want? Because it's all about you. And if you want light barbecue as opposed to heavy barbecue, God forbid we impose the, 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 the heavy barbecue upon you. And, and, and we, we have these experiences. They form us and they shape us to such a degree that we then come into a church and we have kind of the same sort of way of like, okay, well, I want the length of the sermon to be this way. I actually prefer series that are like this. I want the style of music to be this way. I want the people to look like this particular way. And we just walk in with this assumption of like, how is this place going to provide for me as many religious goods and services as possible while I can give as little in, in return? And isn't it interesting in the formation of the first church you don't have them like taking a survey, like, well, we're going to do a market analysis of uh, what these thousands of people want. Like, okay, length of the sermon, 15 minutes seems more ideal because the attention span is not particularly long. And uh, style of music, people want this. And, uh, you know, okay, let's see, let's do our market analysis and what feeds into people's egos as much as possible. And, uh, okay, we'll set up a church this way so we can grow as quickly as possible so that we can be a cultural force. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Before anybody is asking the question of what do we prefer they're actually asking the question of who is God? Who is God? And how do we architect a community, life together in such a way that through us doing life together, we reflect to a watching world around us the character and the nature of Jesus who we worship? Isn't that interesting? And I just, that's what I would just, this is why I think this is so important. It's like if you're coming in here and it's basically like you're trying to pick a church the way you're trying to pick a restaurant, you're going to be disappointed again and again and again until you find some place that caters to you in that way, and that's actually worse for your soul than if you found the thing you were wanting. It's like terrible for you. And I'm, I'm not, like, you can be a consumer with a restaurant. Go for it. Don't be a consumer with a church. Find a place that before they're saying, like, here's how we're going to make your wildest dreams come true, they're like, this is who God has revealed himself to be historically, reliably, logically. And now we are going to architect a life together that reveals the character and nature of who he is to a watching world. Uh, I read this book recently that I feel like captures this so well. It's a book called The Presence of God. I'd highly recommend it. Um, it's by a guy named J. Ryan Lister. He says this. He's talking about how this should like, shape the way we understand, even like why does a church exist? He says, the presence of God has implications for the way we understand the community of believers. The New Testament shows us that the church is the temple of God. The church, according to Paul, is where God dwells. The community of Christ, therefore, is, in this time of waiting for Christ's return, the institution the Lord creates and uses to represent and perpetuate his divine presence. Oh, I forgot you don't have this. I'm reading this super fast. All right, I'm going to read this part. This is the heart of it. I'm going to read it slower. The community of Christ, therefore, is, in this time of waiting for Christ's return, the institution the Lord creates and uses to represent and perpetuate his divine presence in a lost and sinful world. This community, it tells others about God's presence to save and helps prepare believers to enter into God's presence once and for all in the new heaven and the new earth. So as we are doing our life together, we are trying to answer this question, who is God? Who has he revealed himself to be? And how do we then, through our doing life together, reflect to a watching world, this is who God is? That's why you have to understand what happens. Okay, end of the longest introduction in the history of sermons. Okay, that's the way you have to understand verses 42 through 47. 
It's a, it's, a group, it's a community of men and women who have formed the first church, who are saying, through us doing our life together, we are um, reflecting who God is. So let's look at that then. This is point two. I'll be more explicit. Point two, a community reflecting God's character. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, so you just understand these are not new ideas. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, back in 1939, talked about this, that we have to come into community from this posture of, who does God call us to be as opposed to, this is what I want? Um, he called this the wish dream problem. He wrote, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. So here's this community saying, who is God? We're going to form ourselves around this. And they answer this question, look at the text with me, in seven ways. The first is, look at verse 42, truth. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing that marks this community, we are told, is their commitment and love of the truth of who God is. Isn't that amazing? That they were committed deeply. They were saying, hey, we're not just a bunch of people who are lonely and trying to figure out things that we can do together. We're not just this community that's shaped around this vague definition of love, but it's that they with great certainty believe that God historically, reasonably, logically, verifiably has revealed who he is in the world, he has uh, appointed apostles to write. That's the Bible that we have for us as well, to give a real, historical, reliable account of who he is. And consequently, we will devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching so that we might build our lives around the declaration that Jesus is who he says that he is. That's why we study the Bible, for example. This is the apostles' teaching that we're studying right now in line with the legacy of what happens in verse 42 there. Two, Commitment to one another. So they not only are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, but also to the fellowship. So they were not only devoted to teaching, but also to one another. Again, this reflects the character nature of God. Why do they love truth? Because God is a God of truth. Why are they devoted to one another? It's because God is devoted to us covenantally, that God loves us covenantally. All that means is that God loves us without an exit plan. Nobody else loves us that way, right? Like most people's love of us is conditional. They're like, we'll love you as long as you perform. And once you stop performing, it's like, peace, I'm out. That is not covenantal love. God loves us without an exit plan. And when you've been loved in that way, when you understand the love of God expressed to you where he has long suffered alongside of you, it transforms you to be a covenantal lover as well to the people in the body around you. Like, hey, I'm not just gonna love you when you perform. I'm not just gonna love you when you're at your best. I'm gonna love you without an exit plan as well in the same way that God has loved me. Three, they practiced the ways of Jesus together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see that Christianity, it wasn't just a body of ideas, but it was um, the word made flesh. It was a practice. Like, we believe that Christianity is not just kind of ideas out there, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And consequently, our faith is an incarnated faith. It is a faith that is put in practice daily through our rhythms of what it is that we're doing together. Now, how did they do this in the first church? They vote themselves to the breaking of bread. If you translate it literally, it would be the breaking of the bread. Okay, what's the bread? Any scholar is going to say that they're probably referencing is a regular breaking of communion together. Hey, we're breaking the bread. We're pouring out the wine. We're proclaiming to one another. Jesus' body's been broken. His blood's been poured out. That's for us. That's why we exist. We proclaim this. We celebrate this as well as to the prayers. That's why, connect the dots. Again, 
Okay, why do we respond to the ways that we do of communion weekly, of prayer weekly? It's because in line with the legacy of this church, we devote ourselves to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Fourth, an experience of the supernatural. Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. A lot could be said here. I'm going to talk about this in much greater detail next week. So that's my trailer for come back next week um, because we're going to see the first miracle, the first at least uh, healing miracle in the, uh, the book of Acts, and I'm going to dive into all of this. But we just see, you know, God is the God of the miraculous. He's the God of Genesis 1 who speaks the world into existence. If that's possible, like anything's possible. And we see that there was a mark of this community of the experience of the supernatural. Fifth, unity. Verse 44 says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, it would be easy to misunderstand that as uniformity as opposed to unity. Um, remember, what leads up to this is this hugely diverse uh, culture of uh, people from all over the world who are together. And we even see in the coming chapters of Acts, there's a lot of tensions that center around ethnicity and difference of culture and difference of preference. But what we see is that there is this unity in the midst of their diversity. There's not uniformity, but there's unity. And it's not just because it's like a neat first century thing, just like the way it's a neat 21st century thing. But instead, their unity in the midst of their diversity is a reflection of the triune God that they worship. Do you understand that? Like, why do we spend so much time talking about the Trinity about a month ago? Is because what we see in the character and nature of God himself is both unity and diversity. God is diverse in his personhood, that he's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet he is perfectly unified as one God with a unique individual will for the world. We, as the church, the presence of God dwells among us, and there should be this beautiful tension and dance of diversity and unity happening at the same time, that we are unified, not uniform in terms of what is going on. We reflect who God is in his nature through that. Sixth, generosity. Verse 45 says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. These were people who understood that God has been generous to them. How has God been generous to them? Just by giving them the gift of life? I mean, that's a pretty big one, right? Like, here's life, okay? I couldn't have gone to school to like get that happen. Okay, so you gave me life, all right, that's a big deal. You provide for me my daily bread. You give me my skills and abilities and aptitude and genes to help me do what it is that I do. But even most explicitly is you give your son in my place for my sin to be reconciled back to you. And so your generosity, God, is going to transform us into being generous people. And here's this community of men and women marked by taking their stuff and understanding this is not mine I did not earn this. I'm not an owner of this. I'm not going to use people to get more of this stuff, but I'm going to use my stuff to bless people so they might flourish. Can you imagine if a city full of people took their posture towards their stuff in this way? Could you imagine, like, what if a church, a city's too much to ask. Okay, let's, what if the Summit Church was full of men and women who understanding that God had been generous with them, not because we're guilty, but because that liberates our death grip on our things. God's been generous to us, And so I'm not going to use you to get more stuff from me. I'm going to use my stuff to bless you and see you flourish. What could happen in a community if a bunch of people function that way? Acts is a really great testimony to it. And then seventh, community transformation. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God... Can I give you another St. Patrick's quote? 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that permission there. We've had this awkward moment of somebody been like, no, and I've been like, well, I like it. So <laughs> you really should read this whole thing. Um, I just, I, I, I thought of this yesterday as I was reading his confession, this praising God piece. He said this, he said, uh, oh man, we don't have the time for this, but here's what's interesting about Patrick, because I, I had a conversation with somebody after the nine o'clock, they knew nothing about him. So what's interesting about Patrick is he was born in Italy and his family, I think, immigrated to what we now call England. And he was taken as a child, as a slave by Irish pirates, taken to uh, Ireland. And then he escaped slavery, came back to where he was from. But he basically felt like God was calling him to go back to the people that enslaved him and to become a missionary. That's how he ended up in Ireland. Um, and so his confession is telling the story of like how he basically returned willfully back to the people that enslaved him to tell them about the gospel and God's love for them. Um, and so he talks about that. I feel like that gives some context when he says this. That is why I cannot be silent. You're like, whoa, that's serious. Um, he's not just like blasting people on social media when he says not be silent. Like he's like returning back to the people that enslaved him to proclaim the gospel to them. That is why I cannot be silent, nor would it be good to do so about such great blessings and such a gift that the Lord so kindly bestowed in the land of my captivity. This is how we can repay such blessings. When our lives change and we come to know God, to praise and bear witness to his great wonders before every nation under heaven. And we celebrate this dude's, <laughs> dude's life by drinking really bad Bud Light. Um, spirit convicting the way you need to in our city. All right. All right. We're, we're off topic. Okay. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That's why I stopped there. And having favor with all the people. Isn't that an interesting dance, right? Because we feel like we're in this cultural moment where it's like either we praise God and everybody hates us or we're like silent about our faith and we only affirm the things in culture that like culture is momentarily affirming and, um, you know, the people like us. But they exist in this weird tension of like we praise God and we have favor with all the people. And what's the byproduct of all this? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And what you see is a glimpse of this community that was like a city in a city, a city of God that's putting on display within the city of man the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. This kingdom culture where in the middle of the city where everybody's like killing each other and taking advantage of one another and using one another, we are putting on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when this outside skeptical world is watching, and it's so funny if you go back and read like first century and second century historical documents where people, you know, Roman pagans are trying to wrap their minds around, what was this first community like? And, and everybody's like, they're so weird. They're talking about like drinking Jesus's blood and eating his body. Like, is it literal? Is it like, is it cannibal? that's going on here. Like there's real historical documents where people can't wrap their, their minds around this. They're weird. They're saying there's only one God. There's only one way to be reconciled back to God. It totally is against all the polytheistic pagan postures of the Roman empire. And yet when we see how they love one another, when we see how they love the city in which they exist, even their enemies who are persecuting them, when we see how they put on display the goodness of what life looks like, when Jesus Christ is Lord as it pertains to money and work and family and sex, like we just want to be around that because whatever that is is better than whatever we have and it doesn't make total sense but we just be around it and eventually we'll come to a place where day by day the Lord was adding to the number those who are being saved that's how the church grew that's how the church grew and the church welcomed them in with like open arms like come on in come on in come on in so um, 
Oh, good. I'm hoping I got it fixed because in the back of my mind the whole time I was like, do I go until we can fix this so we can sing together? Or like, I mean, I, I can talk a long time. Uh, so so we, we did it, everybody. We did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So here's how I want to uh, conclude. This is perfect. Um, I, I want to conclude with a prayer and a practical action step. And when I say a practical action step, what I don't mean by that is I want to give you an action step. I, I thought originally about like, okay, I'm going to have this longer third point where I'm like, here's the 10 things that get in the way of us experiencing community and stuff like that. And I feel like that like goes against my very introduction of like, we feel like we're like one like action step away from like overcoming this. Um, and so what I wanted to do was just take five or so minutes and create some space for silence and prayer before the Lord um, to do two things. One, to cultivate this posture of dependency um, to say, hey, like, even we're dependent on you, Lord. Like, we don't want some guy just to tell us, like, hey, how do I fix this problem of isolation? Like, we come to you, Lord. Spirit, you're speaking today. Like, we want to hear from you. Okay. So we're dependent. And would you speak to me and tell me, um, maybe what's one simple thing I can start cultivating in my life so that I can move from a place of isolation to community, from independence to uh, commitment. And it might be a step of forgiveness that you need to take. It might be a step of just, like, getting different priorities, you know? Um, it might be a step of uh, just commitment and covenant in the life of this church or to a group and just showing up when you say you're gonna show up at things. Again, I, I don't really wanna talk a whole lot here. I wanna allow time and space for the Lord to speak. So um, that's what I'm gonna do. I, I'm gonna just create space for us to just be silent together for about uh, five minutes or so. And then I'll uh, close this out and how we uh, respond. So let's, let's go to the Lord and just and ask him, um, to create in us dependency and to speak to us, to give us a posture of here's what uh, we're, we're supposed to do.